Um, I'm Ted Ruger. Uh, welcome to uh, a really auspicious event in, uh, in our year at, uh, at Penn Law School. Uh, we're really honored to, uh, to welcome uh, the Honorable Donald, Donald Varelli, Jr., former uh, Solicitor General of the United States, uh, to talk with us today, as well as um, uh, um, Joseph Wayland, who's the General Counsel and, and former head of the Antitrust uh, Division in the Department of Justice, um, and our own colleagues, uh, Rangita De Silva De Alwis and Tobias Wolf, to also help introduce and participate in the conversation. Um, I will, uh, I will briefly, and uh, in the interest of time, inadequately introduce our honored guest uh, speaker, and then uh, turn the podium over to my colleague, Associate Dean uh, Rangita De Silva De Alwis. Um, the Honorable uh, Don Varelli will then speak um, and share some thoughts from his uh, illustrious career and experiences with us. And then we'll shift to a more interactive uh, uh, panel where Joe Wayland, uh, Don Varelli, and uh, Deputy Dean and Professor Tobias Wolf will explore some of those issues and then uh, open it up to the floor. And so you can, as you're listening to the first uh, two parts of the uh, program, we want questions. I know I'm talking with our with our distinguished guests. They want your questions, so please be thinking of what you'd like to hear from them. So again, I will very briefly introduce uh, Mr. Varelli before we head to the, the meat of the program. Um, he was the nation's 46th Solicitor General of the United States from 2011 to 2016. Uh, during that time, he argued dozens of cases before the Supreme Court and was responsible for representing the US government um, in all appellate matters before the High Court and other courts of appeals. He also advised President Obama and uh, the Attorney General during that time. Some of his landmark cases, ones that I've taught in my health care classes, include cases like uh, NFIB versus Sebelius, uh, the famous uh, individual mandate case, among other things, uh, King versus Burwell involving taxes for the exchanges, uh, successful advocacy for marriage equality in Obergefell, the Hodges and U.S. versus Windsor, um, and a range of, of other cases uh, that, that were among, are among the most important across a, a range of issues. Um, uh, he, before that, had a distinguished career in both private practice and in the government and served in a variety of White House and Department of Justice positions, as well as uh, private law positions. Today, he's a partner in uh, Munger Tolls, um, uh, DC office, which is um, a, a new office for that very, very high-level firm, and uh, uh, currently growing, growing uh, in the DC area. So we're really happy to have you. I appreciate it. Um, as we transition, I want to just acknowledge and, and thank two others involved in the program. First, um, Mr. Wayland, uh, Joseph Wayland, who's the general counsel of Chubb uh, Corporation, uh, a former Department of Justice attorney and leader of the Antitrust Division as well, and a, and a supporter of the. The law school and our, and our students, um, we appreciate your presence and your role in bringing this event together. Um, and my colleague, uh, Associate Dean Rangata De Silva De Alwis, who um, has a tremendous vision re reflected in this event and so many other uh, programs and student uh, opportunities uh, here and around the world uh, for our global and domestic vision for engagement with the law, with leadership and human rights. Uh, uh, she's a teacher here as well and inspires students in that capacity, as well as connecting them with uh, the world's leaders, like Mr. Varelli, by bringing them here to campus or sending our students off to uh, engage with them in the UN and around the world. So 
um, and she was a primary mover in, in the vision behind this event. So thank you, and with, with no ado, I'll, I'll turn, it, turn it over. Thanks. Thank you, Dean Ruger, for those kind words. Joseph Bayland is Executive Vice President and General Counsel of Chubb Limited, the largest insurer in the world. Uh, he also served in the U.S. Department of Justice as Deputy Assistant Attorney General responsible for the, for the Antitrust Division. But I want to spend a moment, Joseph, in thanking you for the ways in which you have helped to transform Penn Law's global public service. When Solicitor General Verily spoke at Columbia Law School's commencement in 2012, you said, Solicitor General, that at the core of the profession is an ethic of public responsibility. There is, or at least there should be, nobility in our work. And being the voice of the voiceless and standing up for the rule of law in everything you do. And Joseph Whalen's own leadership in the rule of law fellowship here at Penn Law really embodies those values and that ethos. Thanks to Joseph Wayland and his vision and his generosity, Chubb continues to support Penn Law graduates through the Chubb Rule of Law Fellowship. When I first met you, Joseph, I was immediately struck by your unshaken belief in the values of public service and the ways in which the, public, the private sector could nurture public responsibility and public service. And you told me that you would love to hear the story of our current Chubb Rule of Law Fellow who serves as our first UNDP Fellow. Last summer, when President Mary Robinson, the first president, the first woman president of Ireland, spoke here at Penn Law's commencement, she foresaw some of the greatest challenges waiting our new graduates at a time when the world was in shock. And she charged our Penn Law students thus, in every generation, there comes a time when humanity is called to shift to a new level of consciousness, to reach a higher moral ground. And that time is now. This is your time. And Pinky Mehta, a recent graduate, was listening to the president's speech. And she wrote to us the next day, I felt that President Robinson was speaking to me. What can I do to seize that challenge? And thus began her work as a Chubb Rule of Law Fellow. And now she is at the UNDP, and which is such a historic opportunity and made possible because of your generosity, Mr. Whalen. An estimated 4 billion people are unable to access justice. And the justice deficit is one of the world's most pressing challenges. And through Chubb's Rule of Law Fellowship at Penn Law, Chubb impacts access to justice globally. Mr. Whalen's singular commitment to shaping global public service in challenging times is matched only by his dedication to family. And that is why we are thrilled to welcome his wife, Patricia, and his nieces and nephews here to Penn Law. Mr. Verily, in his commencement address at Columbia, concluded very powerfully by reminding the young lawyers, in your most difficult moments, you will be sustained by the people who love you your family, and your friends. And that will surely include the friends you have made at this great law school. And this has been certainly true for me. And that is how you concluded, Mr. Verily. It certainly was true for Mr. Verily and Mr. Wayland. The Honorable Verily introduced his sister to his law school classmate, Joseph Wayland, and the rest is history. 
And it is through Joseph Whalen's gracious introduction to his brother-in-law, Mr. Verily, that, that Penn Law now has the great privilege of hosting the 46th Solicitor General of the United States. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for those gracious introductions. Now you know all of our family history. <laughs> uh, uh, it's really wonderful to be here today, and I really appreciate all of you uh, taking time out this afternoon to be here and be part of this. I'm very grateful for your presence here. Uh, I'm going to talk about uh, serving the public in challenging times. And I think the idea of asking me to speak on this subject was for me to uh, spend some time reflecting with you about my public service and how I perceive that as being public service during challenging times, and I will do some of that. But you know, given what's going on right now in our country, I'm also going to talk about what I at least think public service in challenging times should mean now and going forward. So when I served in the Obama administration, I certainly uh, thought that I was serving the public in challenging times. I joined the administration uh, in the Justice Department in 2009 and was there for a year and then was uh, in the White House Counsel's Office for a year and a half. And you know, during that period, the nation, as I'm sure you remember, was teetering on the precipice of economic collapse. The national security organizations of this country were being convulsed by revelations about torture and rendition and surveillance. And for those of us serving in the government in that period, we felt like the stakes could not be higher. Uh, we felt that the fate of the country was at stake and was in a very real sense in our hands. And not just our hands in the political, uh, of the hands of the political officials, but of the many, many extraordinary, dedicated career public servants with whom we worked and whose energies had to be marshaled to try to meet these crises. Now, by the time I moved back to the Justice Department in 2011 to become Solicitor General, those initial challenges, profound as they were, seemed to be more or less under control. We had staved off the worst. We'd begun the process of rebuilding stability and effectiveness and trust across a whole range of issues. But uh, for me in particular, when I became Solicitor General, uh, I was serving in times that were challenging in a different way. Uh, it would fall to me to defend the policy choices of a liberal progressive administration in front of a court whose majority was quite conservative by lots of historical measures, maybe the most conservative Supreme Court majority ever. Uh, and I experienced that as a considerable challenge. Uh, it was true in battles over the Affordable Care Act, uh, battles over establishing principle of equality before the law for gay and lesbian people, battles over immigration, battles over religious liberty, and so much else. And it may be difficult to remember, uh, given how much bombards us each day now, just how intense public engagement on those issues was and the stakes in which those issues were cast. Uh, the NFIB case, uh, you may remember, one of the dissenting justices in that case called the Affordable Care Act and the Supreme Court's decision to uphold it, said it uh, reflected a vision of the country that would have been, quote, unrecognizable to the founders, unquote. And King against Burwell, the second Affordable Care Act case, the statutory case, 
You read the dissent there. It describes the position that I was advocating for as a brazen disregard of the rule of law. In the Windsor and Obergefell cases, uh, the, the dissenting opinions there talked about how the position that I was advocating for on behalf of the Obama administration usurped the sovereign prerogatives of the people of the United States. You may recall the Chief Justice's memorable dissent in Obergefell where he said to uh, gay and lesbian people, please, by all means, celebrate today's uh, judgment uh, in your favor, but remember that the Constitution has nothing to do with it. Uh, battles over immigration in the United States against Arizona and the United States against Texas, uh, where the position that I was advocating for on behalf of the Obama administration was described as a historically unprecedented executive overreach to protect undocumented immigrants who are violating our laws every day. So what did I learn from that experience? A lot, uh, but I think two things most important um, that I want to impart today. First, uh, I think I learned that you are going to be at your best when you decide to stand for something. Now, I want to be clear about this. You know, I was really, really lucky to have the chance to be Solicitor General under President Obama. Um, I got to stand up in court and take those positions that I just described. And that, uh, and I got to do that just because I happened to be Solicitor General at the time that those cases came before the court. That was an opportunity that was presented to me, not one that I created. But I did care a very great deal about the principles that I was advocating for, in particular the principles that everyone should have access to affordable health care in this country and that gay and lesbian people should be fully equal in the eyes of the law. And I tried in my advocacy to really embrace that, and I think it helped me a great deal. Uh, you probably remember, at least some of you probably remember, uh, that during the oral arguments in the first health care case, and if I be against Sebelius, I came in for some incredibly intense criticism uh, on day two of the argument. Uh, a lot of people out there very unhappy uh, with the argument. Uh, a lot of criticism, and I won't kid you, it was really tough uh, to go through that. Um, but um, it also led me to what I think of as I look back on it as the best and most important moment in my time as Solicitor General at the end of the <coughs> third day of arguments, or three days of oral arguments in that case. I was there up at the podium for three days. At the end of the third day, I tried to step back and uh, do a conclusion for the court where I um, tried to put what we were fighting about in perspective and said to the court that, you know, we've been talking for three days about liberty and what it means and whether it means freedom from restraint uh, under the law. But really, um, if you think about it, there was a profound connection between what the Affordable Care Act was trying to do and securing the blessings of liberty, uh, the phrase from the preamble of our Constitution, because without your health, how can you enjoy the blessings of liberty? Um, and I, you know, it came from my commitment, and it came from having stood for something. You know, and something similar happened in the Obergefell case. Now, people in general like that argument a lot better than they did the Obergefell argument, I mean, the uh, NFIB argument. But even there, too, it was, you know, that commitment led me to sort of take a chance at the end of that argument, similar to the chance I took at the end of the NFIB argument. Uh, 
uh, where I uh, tried to talk about uh, you know, thinking about the, the question of equality for gay and lesbian people before the law in terms that connected it up to our civil rights struggles uh, throughout our history. And in particular, I took the idea, didn't invoke it by name, but I took the idea in Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail. The basic idea, uh, you know, why we can't wait um, and tried to use that as the explanation for why it was important for the court to act now and not wait uh, to ensure equality before the law. So let me now move on to the second thing I learned, which is related to the first. And it's this. If you're going to take a stand for something, it's absolutely vital that you do it with integrity. Because you know when you take a stand for something, others are going to disagree with you. They may disagree with you vehemently. And it may be, as was the case with some of the things I did, that millions and millions of people are going to disagree with you. Um, and uh, it's not just members of the profession I'm talking about or members of the public generally. But you know, for a lawyer in the leadership, uh, leadership provision, uh, position in the government, um, there may well be a lot of people within the government, dedicated career public servants who are wonderful people and wonderful lawyers who disagree uh, with what you've chosen to do or the way you're choosing to carry out what you've chosen to do. And so it's absolutely vital that the process that you use as a leader to decide matters of this kind, this consequence, be fair and transparent and participatory. Everyone needs to have his or her say. The matter needs to be debated fully and openly. And you need to be able to explain your decision honestly and cogently. And then that need for integrity is just as important when you're carrying out the decision you've made and actually taking your stand in public. Because especially when you're taking a position in public that's controversial, you undermine yourself if people doubt your motives. And you are much more effective and persuasive if people understand that you believe what you are saying. And you are doing this because you believe in it. Now, as I said, you know, I really thought that I was serving the public during challenging times. Uh, these were real and sometimes daunting challenges for me. But you know, guess what? I had no idea what it meant to really serve the country in challenging times. Because um, the fights we had during the Obama administration were legal policy fights, mainly. They were about the way the power that our Constitution allocates to Congress and to the executive branch the president were being used within our constitutional structure and system. They were, in other words, normal political disagreements, like disagreements about whether taxes should be higher or lower, or whether we should have more or less regulation. Now, to be sure, the norms that hold our constitutional system together were fraying uh, even then. Uh, and as I mentioned a minute ago, the rhetoric that was used in those disputes uh, often would give you the impression that the very nature of the constitutional order was at stake. But really, those disputes were all within the guardrails. Um, they were policy arguments and legal arguments of the kind that we in this country have been having since the days of the founders, when we were arguing about whether there should be a bank of the United States and continuing through our entire history. And uh, 
key thing, though, is that we are in a totally different place right now. And the challenges that all of us face, especially leaders of the legal profession, and especially leaders of the legal profession who hold positions of importance in government, uh, we have to recognize that the problems that we face now are of an altogether different order of magnitude than the ones that I thought were so serious just a few years ago. Um, and so I'm not going to mince words, and I've got pretty strong views about this, uh, but let me just say it. Um, uh, as far as I'm concerned, the commitments to the rule of law, the commitment to the rule of law that binds us together as a people more than anything else is under direct assault by the President of the United States every day. Uh, as I said at the beginning, it can be difficult to maintain a proper perspective given the daily bombardment, but take a step back and just think about the things that have happened in the last few months. The President has attacked the Justice Department's career lawyers for bringing criminal indictments for fraud against two sitting members of Congress because, in his words, the indictments might lead to Democrats winning those seats. Uh, the President regularly demands that the Department stand down from investigating him and his colleagues, and at the same time regularly demands that the Department investigate and indict people he perceives as his adversaries, from his formal ri former rival for the presidency to high-ranking officials in the Department of Justice and the FBI and elsewhere in the government. The President uh, just a few days ago declassified information in applications uh, for FISA warrants, even though his own national security team reviewed that information and concluded that its disclosure would risk uh, harming national security by disclosing intelligence sources and methods. And he did that so that his allies could use those disclosures to attack the credibility of the investigations into him. The President has repeatedly attacked the integrity of judges who rule against him or his administration. And that's, you know, that just scratches the surface. Uh, basically, you know, we have a President who gets up in the morning and swings a sledgehammer at the public's confidence in the rule of law. Uh, president who's try, quite consciously trying to make federal law enforcement serve his own interests and not those of the nation. And when we talk about the rule of law, of course, what we mean above all is that, in the words of the Massachusetts State Constitution drafted by John Adams, we are a government of laws and not men. That is the indispensable premise of our constitutional form of government and the president is trying to turn it upside down. And what do we hear from our leaders, especially our leaders in the president's party, both in and out of government? Well, with a few brave exceptions, what we hear is crickets. Now, I don't fault the men and women at the Department of Justice. For the most part, they're keeping their heads down and forging ahead. They are respecting the rule of law. They're resisting the president's demands, and they deserve real credit. But as I said, with a few brave exceptions, leaders who are in a position to push back, leaders who are in a position to stand for something, namely to stand for the rule of law, are just silent. And make no mistake, that silence is not neutrality. Each time the president crosses another line, 
Silence emboldens him to take another swing with the sledgehammer. And that, I think, is on particularly vivid display uh, in the Supreme Court confirmation hearings uh, that have been going on. You know, senator after senator on the Republican side has extolled Judge Kavanaugh's commitment to the rule of law. And if you permit me, I'm going to read a couple of them to you. Uh, this is Chairman Grassley in his uh, introductory statement. Our legal system is the envy of the world. It provides our people stability, predictability, protection of our rights, and equal access to justice. But this is only possible when judges are committed to the rule of law. And then invoking Justice Scalia, he said, the role of the judge is to apply the law as written, even if the legal result is not the one the judge personally likes. And now Senator Cruz uh, said, candidate Trump said he was looking to appoint judges in the mold of Justice Scalia. He said he wanted to appoint judges who would interpret the Constitution based on its original meaning, who would interpret statutes according to the text, and would uphold the rule of law. Uh, <clears throat> so, there they are, and you, know, you could find myriad other statements uh, from members of the Senate uh, saying more or less the same thing in their support of Judge Kavanaugh. But at the exact same time that they are saying this, the very foundations of the rule of law are absorbing blow after blow from the president, president's sledgehammer. And I think we can put aside for the moment whether the methods of interpretation of statutes, interpretation of the Constitution, endorsed by Chairman Grassley and Senator Cruz are right or wrong. We've been having a good faith debate about that in our country for some time, and we should continue to. That's how we should do things. But we should all be able to agree that the rule of law is more than just a law of rules. What good uh, is, is it going to be if, uh, if we have judges who are going to apply the statutes according to their text, if the integrity and the independence of the judicial branch and the integrity of, and independence of law enforcement and the public's confidence in those institutions lies in rubble. And so um, I want to acknowledge in closing that this is not a new problem. Uh, my favorite author, Dante, uh, was talking about this problem 700 years ago. Um, and I want to share a little bit of that with you. Uh, this is uh, in the Inferno. It's just uh, before Dante and Virgil, his guide, are going to enter through the gates of hell. Uh, and they come across this mass of wailing spirits. And Dante describes them as unfamiliar tongues, horrendous accents, words of suffering, cries of rage, voices loud and faint, the sounds of slapping hands. All these made a tumult, always whirring in that black and timeless air as sand is swirled in a whirlwind. And then so Dante says to Virgil, well, who are these people? What are, what's, what's up with these people? Who are they? And then Virgil explains to Dante, well, these are the people who would not take a stand when they were living. And what, he, and what Virgil explains to Dante is that these people are forced to intermingle with that wicked band of angels, not rebellious and not faithful to God, who held themselves apart. And then he explains why they won't even be admitted into hell. Uh, Virgil tells Dante that uh, why they're stuck where they are. So 
loath to impair its beauty, heaven casts them out. Heaven's not going to let these people in. They don't deserve it. And the depth of hell does not receive them, lest on their account the evil angels gloat. <laughs> in other words, even hell doesn't want these people because at least the people in hell took a stand. They might have taken a stand for evil, but at least they took a stand. <coughs> and these people aren't even worthy of being in hell. And so, um, now, far be it from me to presume to predict what fate awaits those who won't take a stand now. Um, but the one thing I will say is, you know, it's not too late. Uh, so far, the rule of law in our country has absorbed these blows. Maybe shaking some, but it's, it's absorbed these blows, and it's still there, and it's still standing, and it's not too late. And I think it's one thing that all of us who are members of this profession and aspiring members of this profession can take with us, and that's the idea that whatever our political differences may be and our policy differences may be and our differences may be about how to interpret the Constitution and statutes, we all ought to be able to agree that we want to preserve the constitutional framework of the rule of law in which those disputes can take place honorably and in good faith and get worked out in the way they have in our history. And so I, um, I think uh, you know, my hope is that in the, in the coming months, which I think are going to be a critical period, that our leaders will take a stand for the rule of law. Um, and I uh, shudder to think what will be the case if I'm wrong. Thank you very much. So General Brilli has made my job much harder because he really hasn't given me much of substance to talk about. <laughs> um, I'm actually going to start with a, a moment of personal privilege, which is um, building off of one of the moments that General Brilli talked about in his address, which was the way that he finished his argument in the Obergefell case, which was the marriage equality case before the Supreme Court. And uh, <clears throat> Obergefell was actually the first occasion that I ever went to and attended an argument before the court. And I had a, a kind of, call it a superstition, that I didn't want to actually walk in the front door of the Supreme Court until I had a reason to be there other than being a tourist. And I thought, I'll argue a case before the court, which will happen one of these days. Um, hasn't happened yet. But then Obergefell came along, and, and I was a member of the Supreme Court bar, and I thought, OK, Screw it. Like, this is, this is enough of a, I had an amicus brief before the court. This is enough of an occasion to be there. And I wound up getting a really good seat. And so I was in the front of the lawyers section. I was two rows away from the lawyers and from the justices. It was an incredible experience. And I have to say that one of the most singular and, and important moments in that case was General Verrilli's argument and the way that he closed with 
he chose to speak on behalf of the US government and make a statement of profound inclusion of gay and lesbian people as full participants in the American community. And I'm an institutionalist, and so what people in positions of authority say matters to me perhaps more than it even should. But it was one of the moments for me that stands as a sort of benchmark for my inclusion in the American community by figure people in positions of authority whose, whose position matters to me. And uh, so it's my opportunity to say in front of an audience, General really, thank you. Well, you got me all choked up here. <laughs> um, and there is a lot to talk about that General Verley has put on the table. I want to begin uh, with a kind of uh, what's sort of a stock question, but one that I think will be important for our students, which is people think of the SG's office as primarily being about arguing cases before the court or advocating in front of the court when you get to the point of a fully joined case that has to be briefed and then argued. The SG's office plays a much bigger role than that inside the Justice Department. And it's a role that is, in some ways, a sort of island of responsibility and authority within the Justice Department. Can you just tell us a little bit about what the SG's office does? Yeah, sure, I'd be happy to. So, it, I mean, that's very true. And um, the standing at the podium and arguing cases on behalf of the government is really the tip of the iceberg of the work of the office. It's uh, 21 lawyers, 19 of whom are career lawyers. And the, in addition to briefing and arguing 60 plus cases a year, most years, uh, in the court, either as party or amicus, the office has got all these other functions. Uh, it has every appeal that the United States takes in a lower court, the SG has to approve, and there's a long process for getting that done. And, uh, and there are about 2,000 of those a year. Uh, hundreds of briefs in opposition to cert, cert petitions. But you know, in that work of, of figuring out what to put in a cert petition and figuring out when the United States should be an amicus and figuring out when to authorize an appeal, uh, one really important function of the SG's office is that the SG actually makes the decision as to what the position of the United States government will be on whatever matter is at hand. Now, of course, in theory, the Attorney General or the President could overrule the Solicitor General, but that really doesn't happen. And so you've got to make decisions about what the government's position is going to be. And the discussion I had about taking a stand, you know, that was actually the part of the work where that came up the most often, mm -hmm. you know, where there was a lot of conflict, um, a lot of disagreement. And you know the, you were the arbiter of that disagreement. You had to make a judgment. It was really important, as I tried to say, to have a process that everybody felt was fair and inclusive, so they got heard. But then you had to, you know, you had to make a judgment about what the position of the United States was going to be. And some people, including cabinet secretaries, often were going to be unhappy about that. Um, and that, uh, but it did reinforce for me that you know when you do have to make these judgments. Um, uh, you, you know, in the integrity with which you do it is just absolutely vital. It's absolutely vital to making it work. And you know, there were and there were even a couple of times where I had to make a judgment where I said, well, you know, we have to do things this way because the law requires it. And I had drawn a line uh, myself where I said, well, you know, and if the if I get overruled on this, then I'm not going to be able to continue in this job. Um, you know, again, it was one of those things where you just, you know, if you really want to be effective 
in a leadership role anywhere, but especially in the government, you, you know, you just have to be able to take a stand. And, I, and I, that really kind of came to the fore in that part of the job. Are you able to give us an example of one of those occasions? I will because it was uh, leaked to the New York Times and thoroughly reported by Charlie Savage. And so I'd be, I'd be happy to talk about it now. I won't be revealing anything that you wouldn't be able to find on Google. Um, I argued a case called, uh, uh, you probably study it uh, when you study standing, uh, Clapper versus Amnesty International. Uh, and it was a standing case involving a challenge to uh, certain uh, First Amendment challenges, certain amendments to FISA. And we made an argument, I was arguing that there was no standing, and you know, one of the pushbacks you get, you know, when you're a government lawyer, you argue there's no standing, that's part of your job. And so I was up there and I argued this case in the Supreme Court. It's actually during a hurricane. It was amazing, as a little aside. The entire federal government was closed, except the Chief Justice insisted that we have oral arguments. So we had to drive the court during a hurricane. But we got there fine. Um, anyway. Um, and so, in you know, one of the arguments you get pushed back, and one of the pushbacks on standing is that, well, you know, if we don't give these people standing, then maybe no one be, will be able to challenge the constitutionality of the statute. And I had an answer ready for that, which I had prepared with the uh, National Security Division lawyers and the Justice Department. I said, no, no, that's not true because if any, if this surveillance ever picks up information that is then uh, used in a uh, criminal proceeding against a criminal defendant that the law requires that the criminal defendant receive notice uh, and that, that the information was acquired through this FISA statutory provision. And at that point, the criminal defendant could challenge the statute. And I made that argument in our brief. I made it in oral argument. Justice Alito wrote the opinion. I think the only majority opinion he wrote in which I argued uh, in the five years that I was SG. But um, he- uh, That is that he wrote in your favor. In, our, in my favor, yeah. correct, yes. He wrote plenty, <laughs> he wrote plenty hitting me upside the head. But, um, but uh, anyway, he relied on that in his opinion. And then uh, some months later, the New York Times published an article about prosecutions, national security prosecutions of alleged terrorists in which this information, in which the government, which the defendants made requests to the court saying, yes, I believe that uh, the information being used against me was acquired through this FISA process. And the government lawyers said, uh, we don't have any obligation to tell you that. And I read that in the New York Times and I went, what, huh? This is not good. I told the Supreme Court the opposite. And so, <laughs> I called meetings with the lawyers in the National Security Division, and it gets a little bit technical at this moment, but basically the statute said if information is acquired by or derived from surveillance under the statute, then you've got to turn it over. And the lawyers in the National Security Division had adopted an understanding of what the phrase derived from meant, that uh, uh, virtually no English speaker would agree was an uh, appropriate interpretation of those words. And so I just said, well, we can't, no, no, we can't, can't do this, we can't do this. And it led to a very big battle within the executive branch, as I said, all chronicled by Charlie Savage in the New York Times, in which um, the, at first the National Security Division, with the support of several U.S. attorneys and with the support of uh, some of the uh, national security agencies, CIA, et cetera, 
took the position that we should not change our policy. And I took the position that it wasn't a policy call, that it was the law. The law said you had to disclose if it was obtained or derived from this kind of surveillance. Derived has a meaning. In fact, the, that exact statutory language had been borrowed from another statute, another surveillance statute, in which the Supreme Court had given it a definitive construction, which was in accord with what people who speak English would think it meant. And <laughs> so I just said, look, this, this, is not a, this is not a policy call. The law requires us. We have to do it. And uh, that was one where I, I could not have continued in the job if that did not resolve itself with the government changing its policy, because I just would have thought the government would be violating the law, and I wasn't going to have any part in it. And so eventually it worked out in that we had a big meeting chaired by the Deputy Attorney General, and uh, several people aired their contrary views. And then I said, it was a little bit obnoxious, but I said, well, I've noticed none of you have been willing to put it in writing. Will any of you put it in writing that you think that the statute can be interpreted this way so there'll be a record of it? And none of them would. <laughs> and, and it pretty quickly resolved itself after that. So. Um, <laughs> part of what that anecdote captures is something that I'd like to ask you about, partly in reference to your remarks about the situation under the current administration. But, but first, just in more general terms, that the relationship among different actors in the executive branch and all of their relationships to the president is a much more complicated set of relationships than is often either captured in scholarship or understood by people who haven't served in, in government. And you mentioned a moment ago uh, in describing the responsibilities of the SG's office, that part of what you're doing is deciding what the position of the United States government is going to be. You said, you know, in theory, an attorney general or even a president could overrule that. In practice, that's unlikely to happen. Um, give us, if you would, at least the first pass in capturing what the nature of the institutional relationship and norms are in the work of the SG as a subordinate of the attorney general as ultimately answerable to and serving at the pleasure of the president, and yet having a degree of independence that, even if not defined by law, is nonetheless a part of the definition of the norms of the office. Yeah, so we both had, you know, Joe was head of the antitrust division part of the time that I was SG, and we both had the same thing. It's, uh, this oversimplifies it a little bit, but um, basically the, Department of Justice is different from other cabinet agencies, not just the SG's office. The SG's office, like the Antitrust Division and, and you know, Criminal Enforcement, are kind of particular examples of this broader point, which is that on the one hand, the, the Department of Justice is a cabinet office. The Attorney General is uh, you know, answerable to the President. The President can tell the Attorney General what to do, and in turn, anybody else who works for the Attorney General can be told what to do. Uh, and in some circumstances, that's totally appropriate. The president can come in and say, um, we, I uh, favor uh, decriminalizing marijuana, and therefore I'm instructing the Justice Department not to bring any marijuana possession convictions. Or I think that we're, our criminal uh, sentencing policies are way out of whack, and therefore I'm instructing the Justice Department to come up with new policies where we don't always seek the maximum sentence. Those are policy judgments, totally fine. They come from the chain of command. That's all good. And that, you know, and then that 
way Justice Department's no different from HHS or any other authority. But the Justice Department also is a law enforcement agency and enforces the criminal laws, the antitrust laws, sometimes the environmental laws, other laws. And the, the public confidence that the laws are being administered and enforced in a way that is neutral and not political and consistent with the rule of law is of vital importance. I mean, it really, it's an, you know, it's an unwritten rule kind of thing, but it's vitally important. If people think that, well, the Justice Department is just a tool of the, of the, and the enforcement of power of the Justice Department is just being used as a tool for the president either to advance the president's political interests or even worse, to advance the president's personal interests, you put the public's faith in the integrity of, the, of law enforcement in, in grave jeopardy. And so that's why these norms have grown up. They've existed for a long time. The Watergate episode really crystallized the need for a very powerful set of norms along these lines. But they existed long before that. Um, and the SG's role is of a piece with that. And that um, the, the SG's got to make decisions about what positions the United States government's going to take. You want the SG to be making them from an institutional point of view. What's in the long-term interest of the United States government as an institution? And uh, you don't want them to be made for partisan political advantage. And so there's a really strong norm along those lines. And the 19 career lawyers in the, justice, in the SG's office, they totally believe it. It's like coursing through their arteries, you know, that this, this belief. And if an SG were perceived by them as transgressing that set of norms, the, the office would become ungovernable mm -hmm. immediately. It's like, it's really, really important. And, it, and it's important for the same reason, that this is supposed to be on the level. You're not, you know, there's room for valid policy disagreement, sure. You know, some administrations think that the environmental laws ought to be enforced more robustly. Some think they ought to be more enforced less robustly, and that could influence an SG's decision about what kind of position to take as an amicus in a case, for example, or about whether to authorize an appeal or a cert petition. And that's totally on the level. But you, just as with the other powers of the attorney general and the other heads of the divisions, enforcement divisions, you start to put the public's faith at risk if you are starting to be perceived as using the authority you have to advance a partisan agenda. So me, and Joe, yeah. I was going to ask, yeah. you, you headed an enforcement agency. Let me give you an example of that, um, which is timely. Um, so the antitrust division, um, there have been a number of cases recently, one of which is the AT&T Time Warner uh, case. And the president of the United States announced that he had a view about how that um, should come out. Now, the way it works, supposed to work in practice, and the way it worked the last time there was an AT&T case, I don't know how many of you remember, but at one point when I was at the Department of Justice, the AT&T wanted to acquire T-Mobile. And the issue was whether, in a market that only had four uh, competitors, whether it was okay to go from four to three and take out one of the major competitors. Um, and what's supposed to happen is the antitrust division has a number of criteria and experts and economic um, schemata, they apply to a set of facts and determine whether uh, the merger would lessen competition. And we do that following, as, uh, as Don said, through the rule of law. We have a set of procedures, a set of rules, a set of operating principles that we follow to make sure that the decision is in accordance with the rule of law. Now, 
under one administration, you may come out one way or the other as you apply those rules, because there's some subjectivity to the application of law. But the main point is that the, the, that the um, officials of government who are charged with making that decision are allowed to do it independently, following in their best judgment in good faith what the answer is. Um, and when we were there in the Department of Justice, the idea that when we were deciding whether AT&T could merge with T-Mobile, that we would go to the president or even consider what his opinion was that was anathema to what we were doing. We weren't, we didn't, we had a, we had a, an absolute wall between the president and enforcement of trust laws, the same thing in the, in the criminal laws. But it's real, and that's a real example of the difference when the rule of law is being applied and when it's not being applied. And the problem with it is not whether the decision by the Department of Justice to oppose the AT&T Time Warner merger was correct. And again, you can, you know, a lot of economists argue, you can come out on either side of these major cases, depending on who, which economist you want to believe. The point is to follow the process. And because the president had made noise about it, it tainted it. No one thought that the process had, had been worked out the way it was supposed to be. And so that's a very concrete example of that sledgehammer that Don was talking about, whacking at the foundation of the rule of law, a distrust about the outcome that the government is delivering. Yeah. Uh, so that's a good example. If you have a, just one more thing that's live now, too, in the criminal case, there was this fellow, Andrew McCabe, who was the deputy director of the FBI. You know, he was found by the Inspector General of DOJ to have lied uh, in an interview with the FBI, and that was referred to the U.S. Attorney's Office for investigating whether criminal prosecution should be brought. Well, you know, the President of the United States has repeatedly tweeted that a criminal uh, indictment should be brought against this person. And so, just as Joe said about the merger, you know, th think about this. If the, 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 the U.S. Attorney's in a total no-win situation, that if the U.S. attorney doesn't bring the uh, indictment, the president's going to be tweeting about the U.S. attorney being, you know, just like Jeff Sessions. But if the U.S. attorney does bring the indictment, who's going to trust that it was decided on the level? Everybody's going to think, well, the president pressured you into doing this because this guy was your enemy. You know, and that it may not be true. You know, it may be that there was. I'm not saying that there is. I don't know anything about the facts, but. You know, let's say the facts would warrant bringing an indictment. The, the public's confidence that that indictment was brought for the right reasons. You know, how how's it, how's it, how's the public going to be confident about that? And Joe, you have worked at a high level both in government and in the private sector. And one of the things that I talk to my students about, my one else who are in the room will say, "Yeah, you just told us that two weeks ago, Professor." <laughs> is that part of what you're doing as a law student and part of your obligation as a law student is that you're learning how to become a highly engaged citizen and a citizen who understands and is able to be an active and sophisticated participant in certain kinds of conversations about how our government should work. And one of the things I've been struck by in the last couple of years is that the very norm that you've just described and the impact that it would have on trust within government, at least, and perhaps within the industry of a, a decision about whether a merger is going to be obstructed or permitted is, is interfered with and tainted by the kind of holding forth that, uh, that we've seen. That's a norm that's not widely understood or appreciated outside of 
the sort of population of people who think about legal norms on a regular basis. At least I've seen a lot of variability in how, how much that type of idea, you know, there's a lot of people who respond by saying, well, he's the president, he has a different style, but he wants to weigh in in ways that other presidents haven't weigh, weighed in. Um, what do you see as the, what do you see as the, the, the best way to communicate the importance of that norm to non-lawyers, non-career government officials, people who don't sort of spend their time swimming in that kind of water? Well, if I had the real answer to that question, I would be out <laughs> preaching it around the world. Um, uh, you know, it's a fundamental question about democracy and whether or not democracy can survive without an educated, informed, and concerned citizenry. And one of the great, um, one of the great gifts of law and the study of law is the ability of um, the ability to analyze and to apply rigor to any question, right? And that's the great thing. Whether you wind up as lawyers uh, practicing as a as a litigator, as I did for so many years, or a corporate lawyer, whether you go into private practice, whether whatever you do, um, what, what you should take from here is rigor and the pursuit of truth, and that's what law is all about. And just to take an example, when you when you were starting to work on a law review article. You, every sentence has a site to it, right? Because whether you're whether you're stating a proposition, whether whether you're stating a proposition of law or a statement of fact, you have a source, right? Because you you if you don't, then you're just an opinion, and that's probably when, and when I talk about this, and it goes beyond the law. When I when I talk about what's what's wrong with the public discourse is everyone has an opinion about something. Um, the question is, how do you support it? How do you make it more than an opinion? How do you make it an assertion that's worthy of study, worthy of argument, worthy of, uh, worthy of acceptance or not acceptance? Whether, um, and that's what's lacking. And um, you know, I see it at the high school. People who graduate from college, I wonder what happened in high school. Would they miss in high school? Would they miss in college? Would they miss in law school? They didn't understand that's the nature of knowledge. So, um, and it's our job, and it's your job to go out, and whether it's in, you know, whatever small piece of the world you're working in, whether it's a, whether it's about a, you know, you're, you're negotiating a contract, whether you're talking about um, an, uh, an issue in front of your local school board, whether you're talking about the great issues that, that you know Don talked about. The question: How do we have that conversation? Uh, what kind of rigor do we apply to? What kind of rules do we demand of those who participate in that? And that's what your job is, because you have the tools, and you're being taught to use those tools. And if I could just follow up on it too a little bit, that's why I, you know, as exercised as I am about all this, and that partly the reason I think that people may have that perception you described is because, the, because of the silence I was talking about. Yeah. You know, if other leaders who would uh, you would otherwise think of as being, uh, you know, as a policy matter on the same team as the president were saying, no, that's wrong, then the public would perceive that. It wouldn't perceive it as partisanship. It would perceive it as, oh, these are norms. And that's why, to me, that's why I'm so upset about the silence, because now I think me, it has that effect. General Verley, let me ask you a question. This will be my last question, then I want to open it up to the audience. Um, about one of the decisions that you participated in as SG, which critics of the decision argued was placing burdens on that precise norm. And it was the decision that the administration made uh, in response to lawsuits challenging the Federal Defense of Marriage Act, where for some time the administration uh, did what is widely viewed as the 
the obligation of the federal government, which is to defend the constitutionality of laws when any reasonable argument can be made in their defense. And the administration defended DOMA before lower federal courts for a time. And there came a time in the litigation before the Second Circuit when the federal government, uh, presumably with your office being the final decision maker, uh, changed its position and concluded that it would no longer defend the constitutionality of DOMA. And then in the Windsor case before the Supreme Court, indeed you argued for its unconstitutionality. And this is an issue that I spent a lot of time on myself outside of government and, and certainly had a lot of views about as an advocate. But critics of that decision were very sharp in their charge that the administration was deciding to not enforce that norm because it had a strong policy preference and that that was an erosion of that norm. And so talk to us yeah. about that. So I'm going to start with something that sounds like a cop-out, but then I will address the question directly, I promise. So here's the cop-out part. I actually didn't participate in the decision not to defend. Oh, really? And the reason I didn't was because my, the law firm I had worked for before going into the government had brought one of the lawsuits challenging DOMA, and the administration had an ethics rule that you couldn't work on anything that your former employer was involved in for two years. And the decision was made during that two-year window. And I was actually still at the White House when the decision was made. So I didn't participate in it, and as a result, I don't actually know, you know what all the puts and calls were on that. Um, but I can talk about it, uh, and, I, and I will. And um, I did, once I became SG, I carried out the decision in that I went up there, as you said, and I argued the Windsor case, and I was comfortable doing so. Um, that having been said, the norm that the federal, that the SG's office is supposed to defend federal statutes and the Justice Department is a very strong one. I don't think it's a constitutional obligation because in this case, actually, it wasn't the SG's office that made the decision. It was the Attorney General and the President who made the decision. Um, and I, I think, and I think the reason that you can comfortably say that that's within the power of the President to make a decision like that is that the president has a constitutional obligation to faithfully execute the laws. One of the laws that the president has an obligation to faithfully execute is the Constitution. And so I think you can say that the president has the authority to make a judgment that a federal statute is unconstitutional and to even go so far as to not enforce that statute. And arguably at least what the administration did was a lesser step than that. It continued to enforce the statute while refusing to defend it and it took that path so that there would be a continuing case or controversy about the constitutionality of the statute so that the judiciary ultimately would play its assigned role in our system and have the last word on the constitutionality of the statute. Um, but even with that I will say this is a hard issue. I think it's, as I said, I think it's a norm and not a constitutional obligation. But boy, I think presidents should exercise that authority exceedingly sparingly because otherwise it can very easily be an excuse for not, uh, you know, for trying to torpedo uh, a statute that you don't like. And that exact thing I think is happening now uh, with the Affordable Care Act and the litigation going on in Texas where the Justice Department's not defending it. Um, and so I, I think that that, as a, as a prudential matter, it should be exercised really, really sparingly. 
I totally get that, and I, so I understand where the critics are coming from. And some of those critics, were, it wasn't just partisan. You know, there were, there were plenty of critics on the left who made the same point, too. Sure. But then, okay, so then having said that, you know, uh, Brown against Board of Education, um, you know, go, starting in the mid to late 1940s, the Solicitor General's office started filing briefs in the Supreme Court saying that Plessy against Ferguson should be overruled. I think the first one was 48 or 49. Um, and they took that position in a circumstance in which it was the federal government's action in question. It was actions of the Interstate Commerce Commission, one of them. So they were taking a position in a case where you would have had a duty to defend under this point of view. And then in the, you know, one, in the companion case to Brown itself involving the DC statute, um, which required segregation of public schools in the District of Columbia, the government did something very clever. It filed a brief saying that as a matter of constitutional avoidance, you should read the statute as not requiring segregation, even though it was plain on the face of the statute that it required segregation and had, in fact, required segregation for 80 years. Um, but um, you know, so you, if you, but if you really took that, that norm to its full you know, extent, I think you would have said that the government should have been in there defending Plessy against Ferguson because the government, federal government acted on the assumption that Plessy against Ferguson was constitutional in all kinds of ways. I mean, the federal government is still to this day, some you know, almost 70 years later, defending housing discrimination lawsuits based on conduct that occurred before Brown against, Brown against Board of Education in which the federal government deliberately segregated public housing. So there's a whole range of issues on which the federal government, uh, you, you knew by switching position on that, you were subjecting the federal government to massive liability. And so to me, that's what that shows is that every principle, every norm as strong as it is, has a limit. And that you can debate whether Windsor was the right place uh, to find that limit. The president thought it was, and I was perfectly comfortable carrying that out. So. Thank you. Questions from the audience? Here. Oh, yes. um, oh, I'm sorry. So I guess we are going to have you all go up to the microphones. Or can we bring them around? That might be easier. Sorry. Thank you. Yes. Um, hi. My question for both gentlemen is, um, do you believe that since the rule of law is right now in rubble, do you believe that um, it will go back to the balance of um, sustainability in the times that we are in right now? And do you believe that um, what President Trump said today, that he does not have an attorney general, is that a clear sign that he is taking the assault on the Justice Department to a new, higher level than we've ever seen before? So let me ask, I'll answer the second part, then you answer the first part, all right? <laughs> so on the second part, I mean, you know, I don't know what was in the president's head exactly. I don't know what his subjective intent was when he said that, but it seems to me like what he's saying is that when he says, I don't have an attorney general, he's saying, I don't have an attorney general. It's not, the, you know, this person is not acting as my attorney general, which I think is the whole point that is turning the thing upside down. That the point is, no, you're not the attorney general of the president, you're the attorney general of the United States. And I just think that is reflective of that mindset that I was talking about and, and kind of in some ways encapsulates it 
perfectly that he wants it to be a government of men and not laws. And he basically said it. And so, anyway. So, so I think the first part of your question was, do we, do we think that the, we have some optimism that the rule of law uh, can thrive and can survive this? And, and I, I, I'd like to be optimistic. I think, um, I think the, American, um, the American system of justice is strong. I think the American people generally believe in this. this but, I, but history bothers me. If you look at, um, if you look at I, I've, just, I've just been reading a, a book called uh, uh, America and the Jews, and it's about um, the knowledge of the Holocaust that we had in the United States in the, in the 1940s. And um, what was going on at the time was that there was a large segment of American society that was, was completely anti-Semitic, and it stretched across the church, the Catholic Church, um, very senior levels of uh, senators, the State Department, senior levels of the State Department, they had, they were, uh, um, they were, there's no doubt about it, they were anti-Semitic and they refused to, they refused to act, they refused to even acknowledge that the genocide that was occurring and which was, and which was known in the, in the world uh, and, and was being reported in the New York Times at the bottom because the editors of the New York Times weren't exactly the most, um, um, sympathetic uh, to that cause. And when you look at that and you think it's only, you know, these are people who are not different than us. They're not, their DNA is not different than us. They're not, systems aren't that different. And you, when you recognize how fragile it is, I, I'm less optimistic. And I think, I think Don Sledgehammer uh, analogy is terrific. I, I might even just use a hammer. You know, it's, 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 it's a, every little ding is just uh, works at the fabric. And you just don't know when that tipping point is, when you're going to go from a country that um, you recognize to a country that um, you don't recognize. And so I think, and we come back to what we said before, it's not only up to us, our, we're, we're nearing the ends of our careers, but it's up to you all to make sure that you carry that torch forward and that you, that you fight the fights that need to be fought and you, and you learn the arguments so that you can make them and convince people of them. And I'm just gonna take a second to build on that and say that I am optimistic for exactly the reason that Joe just ended on, which is that it is all of you and the generation behind you that makes me optimistic. And you all have to push us the hell out of the way. Sooner rather than later. We yeah. have lessons to offer when it comes to knowledge and skills, and, and it's our job here to impart those lessons to you. But you need to be unburdened and unhindered by all of the habits and compromises and, and, and sort of partial solutions that the people in generations ahead of you have settled upon. Those may have been sort of good answers to the problems that folks faced 10, 20, 30 years ago, but it is your generation, the generation behind you, that need to, to sort of seize the opportunity to define what a renewed obligation to decency and the rule of law and government is going to look like. And I already see that happening, and I actually have a great deal of optimism. And our job is to hold things together long enough so that you have the opportunity to push us out of the way. That's my view. Next. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Um, my question was kind of on this uh, crisis and uh, rule of law scenario that you guys have been talking about a lot. Um, there seems to be a very muted response from people who are not Obama administration appointees um, or otherwise identifying with the left side of the political spectrum. How do you reconcile arguments that similarly were made against President Obama, for example, with the expansion of executive powers in a number of ways, 
What makes this different, and how do you know when to sound the alarm bells that there is truly a crisis in rule of law specifically, um, given the historical tendencies of both parties and the fact that right now there does seem to be silence on one side of the aisle? Yeah, so, you know, it, it was my experience in, as, as SG that the rule of law rhetoric was getting ratcheted up and that things were really, that were really disagreements about policy or disagreements about methods of statutory interpretation or constitutional interpretation were being cast in more extreme terms. Now, the, I'm sure that the Bush administration people felt exactly the same way about the war on terror stuff where, the, where liberals were talking about it all as violations of rule of law and norms. And, you know, but I guess what I would say about that is I'd be grateful if we could get back to f having those fights because the, you know, to my mind, as I think I said, I think those fights are occurring within the guardrails. You know, the immigration fighting, you know, executive power, executive overreach on immigration. Okay, fine. We're having an argument about whether the president has gone too far in using executive power to achieve policy objectives. We've had those arguments throughout our history. Abe Lincoln was accused of those sorts of things, probably with some justification. Yeah. Uh, we had fights about that then. The Supreme Court struck down Harry Truman's effort to seize the steel mills, you know, in the famous Youngstown case on the ground that it was an executive power grab uh, in defiance of the will of Congress. Those are fights we've had in our country. Um, but in none of those fights did I, do I think anybody thought, or anybody said, or very few people said anyway, that, well, you can't trust what the Justice Department is saying because uh, the Justice Department has been thoroughly corrupted by the, the pressures of a president who doesn't believe in the rule of law. Or you can't trust the judge's decisions because they're so-called judges. You know, the, the fight, those fights have, they, you know, they've been, throughout our history, we have had those kinds of fights that I described, and it's okay, and we, you know, assuming we keep, we hold everything together, we'll continue to have those fights, and, you know, that's the way America evolves and grows, having fights like that. And, and the Constitution isn't crystal clear about what the exact limits of executive power are. And statutes are often ambiguous, and we're going to have to fight about those things and work them out within our system. The problem comes if the public loses faith in the system because they come to believe with some, and I don't think we're at that place yet, as I said, if the public comes to believe that this is not on the level, that when, when the Justice Department indicts people for corruption, it's not because they're corrupt, it's because they're the political enemies of the president, or when the Justice Department brings a massive antitrust case, it's not because there's a problem with protecting uh, consumer welfare, but it's because the, the, the corporation that the Justice Department's going after is an enemy of the president. When the public loses its faith in that way, I just think that's a different order of magnitude. And as I said, I, I'd be happy to go back to what I thought was sort of an un unacceptable escalation of the rhetoric back during my time as SG, because I, I do think that was all Everybody took for granted that you know this was happening within the system, and yes, this is going to go to the Supreme Court, and it's going to be five four one way or five four the other way, or what you know, and or six three or whatever, and 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 that's the way our system works these things out. You know, sometimes presidents do overreach. The Supreme Court says can't do that. Sometimes Congress steps in and enacts a statute that limits what the president can do, and that's the way the system works. 
I just think we're in a different place now. That's what I'm worried about. And I have to say, we need vibrant conservative voices as part of that conversation. I mean, Don sort of said a little bit wryly, I wish we could go back to the old fights that we were having. But in order for that public confidence in the integrity of our institutions to be strengthened once again. People need to see it happening not solely in relation to one particular set of policy preferences right. or one particular yeah. set of political affiliations. We need to be having political fights within a shared understanding of the integrity of these institutions. And that means taking seriously the idea that we have to support our conservative peers in doing whatever they need to do to create a more public voice in favor of those values while still holding true to their policy beliefs. Let me pick up on that with a little bit of variation and more of a direct message to you all. So, um, you know, the idea of public service is very important. And, and uh, you know, both Don and I have been in and out of public service in many ways. But um, the important thing to understand is we, and we're Democrats and we have a certain view of the world, but our view isn't necessarily right. When we, you know, think the Affordable Care Act is the way to provide care, we have good reasons for it. But other people of good faith, might have very strong reasons, and you might be among them, but that shouldn't discourage you. In fact, I would encourage everyone your age to go and get involved in some way in the public questions. The public questions that we deal with, no matter, there are some people who say, you know, government, we don't need government. That's absolutely ridiculous. I don't care what side of the political spectrum you are. We have a massive problems that have to be dealt with that can only be dealt with by government, whether it's pollution issues or arms control issues or international relations or healthcare, and a thousand things that need to be dealt with. And they need bright, young people to come forward with their best ideas, and in good faith, um, <clears throat> sorry, to work on those solutions. And, and you need to just get involved, be concerned, and, and give your energy to that. Um, and that's what we want you to do. We don't, we don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican. Go to it. Uh, the, the, the challenges are amazing, and the rewards you'll get from dealing with them are amazing, too. If you, hello, if you were uh, advising someone who is a part of the next administration, um, be they a Democrat or Republican who succeeded Donald Trump by election or otherwise, uh, what would you advise them to do that you and prior administrations didn't do or didn't have to do to affirmatively uh, reassert the rule of law? Uh, so a couple of ideas. Um, one is I would, I think one really important thing and that the next president could do would be to appoint an attorney general who has, who has seen as a person that is of great integrity and above reproach and, um, and who would have the authority to assert the independence of the law enforcement function. Um, I think that would be a really important thing. Then I think, um, I, I think it's not just the next president alone. I think one thing that happened after the Watergate scandals was that Congress enacted a whole slew of laws designed to uh, impose more transparency and more ethics on the operation of the executive branch. Uh, expansion of FOIA, the Ethics in Government Act, a whole series of statutes. 
that um, as somebody who served in the executive branch, I will say they were the bane of my existence. They are an unbelievably intrusive pain in the neck to try to deal with. But they do have the effect of holding government officials' feet to the fire. And I could see a whole series of laws that it would, would help restore public confidence if the ne next president and the Congress acted together to enact them. Um, more robust disclosure requirements about the assets uh, held by the president, uh, statutes delineating what uh, is and isn't in Congress's view a violation of the Emoluments Clause, which Congress has the constitutional authority to enforce. Now, these would be statutes that obviously came out of the direct circumstances that we face now, but that was somewhat true of the statutes in the 70s, too. And quite apart from the specific obligations that those statutes might or might not impose on people who join the executive branch, the fact of their enactment and the fact that Congress and the president would agree to enact them, I think, would be a very helpful thing in trying to restore public confidence. Yeah, I, I would do two things. I would use the bully pulpit of the presidency and, and the executive officers to talk more about what government is for and, what it, and, and, and try to get more of a common recognition of what government is for. And, you know, the, the, the arguments about government are, uh, you know, are, are, um, are not rigorous in many ways. But, you know, you start with, you, um, you know, at the, at the, at the um, State of the Union, there's always somebody um, sitting up top and they point to them for some very um, crass political reason. I'd have somebody from the Center for Disease Control <laughs> sitting up there. And I'd say, this is the face of government. So you don't like uh, you don't like uh, pestilence and uh, and and disease spreading around your community. Well, that's why we have a government, and that person sits at the center of disease control. And begin to have a conversation about what government can do and what it, and what it can't. Do. You know, on the left, there's uh, you know there's a big debate about are we asking too much of government. Um, and when we ask too much of it, then do, does it lose its legitimacy in large large um, slots of the population? The other thing is more of a, a modest, sort of a modest solution suggestion is um, I would actually start a conversation about the Supreme Court and what the Supreme Court should be and what it should mean in our society. It's become, you know, it, it's become a third political branch in many ways. And that's why we are so, uh, in, in, so engaged in, in these um, kinds of conversations and arguments. So who goes up on that court? Because we think it has such an extraordinary impact on things that are really much more um, um, should be solved in the political arena. But because we can't solve them there, um, we look to the court. Either preserve a right, get a right, solve solutions, decide what kind of health care we, we should have. The idea that, if you think about it, that, that the job that Don did is the question, what kind of society do we live in where the government, the, the elected representatives of the government, can't pass a health care law and get it challenged by nine people to say, no, that's not the way health care should be delivered. Now, they, they, they couched in constitutional arguments, but that's not what it was about. It, was, it came down to guys up there deciding whether it's a matter of policy. They like that kind of law. I don't know if that's what the Supreme Court should be doing, so maybe we should have a conversation about that. Don will probably say, oh my God, but that's... No, no, no. <laughs> no I completely agree with that. And then, go, so going back to your question from earlier, too, um, part of, I neglect to say this, but it, it's sort of relevant to both of your questions. Part of what would help reinvigorate uh, you know, a, a more balanced understanding of the way our government should work is if Congress was a little less dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. You know, the whole fight that we had over immigration in the Obama administration, and in many ways the fight that we're having over immigration now in the Trump administration, sure. because Congress hasn't passed any sensible laws to try to get our immigration system in order. You know, one way or the other. You can think of think that we need to be much more restrictive in our in in our immigration policies, or you can think you know, we, get, we need to be much more liberal, or you think, can think we need to be more restrictive at the borders, but deal with these 12 million people who are already here. But you know, those are policy judgments, and the executive branch has some authority to deal with them, but ultimately they're judgments that Congress is supposed to make, and it's only when Congress doesn't make them that the executive branch feels compelled to try to use executive power to deal with them, which creates the lawsuits, which create all the rhetoric about the rule of law. So. I, I do think that if you know if you had a Congress that was able to grapple with these problems and find solutions, you know, hopefully even bipartisan solutions, that would help a lot too. Absolutely. So Don Verrilli, former Solicitor General of the United States, um, uh, Joe Wayland, General Counsel of Chubb, uh, thank you, and please join me in thanking our guests. Thank you. Okay.